Uh, so as you know, we've been looking at the question of who is God now for a number of weeks. <laughs> You'd hope every week, but um, particularly for the last 10 weeks, we've been looking at the book of Isaiah and asking that question, who is God? And so today I'm doing the season finale um, where we're going to be finishing off the story of Isaiah, if you like. And, um, and if this is your first time, you're at the end, you've joined us on a good morning because it's the, the end of a teaching series, so you'll hopefully hear a bit of an overview of what we've been doing. But also this morning, I'm wanting to look at the issue of heaven, um, which again, if you're not a, not a church person or believer or follower of Jesus, this is a question that you've probably got uh, a lot of questions about this theme. And if you're a Christian, no doubt as well, you've probably got a lot of questions about this as well. I, I know that I have. Um, and we're also going to be looking at the question today of, of what is God doing about the mess in the world? Um, you can't help but turn on the news and just see all of the... It feels like the news is so depressing in the last few months. It seems to have ramped up to a whole new level of there's a lot going wrong with the world. And, and I have the question, what, what is God doing about all this? And where is God in all of this? And if those are some questions that you have given thought to, um, then hopefully this morning we're going to be looking a little bit at that. Uh, so we've looked at different things about the characteristics of God and who He is. We've, we've looked at God being the God of peace, uh, the God who vindicates all things. Actually, let's see who can remember any. That's a good question. Um, who can remember any of the, the weeks that we've had? Our God is the God of? Broken hearted. Great, that was last week, so well done. Fresh in the memory banks. Justice. Excellent. Yes, I kind of said that one a minute ago, but... <laughs> So are you not listening at the beginning of the message? That's good. <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble for that one. Pardon? God who makes clean. Well done. Week one, Pat. Brownie points for you. Okay. So those are the... <laughs> Let's show our appreciation for Pat this morning. Yeah, okay. So the God of peace who destroys death, the, the righteous judge, those kind of things. And today we're looking at this, the God who renews all things. And to, to, to get to grips with this, we first of all, I think, need to understand that the way the Bible operates is that it's uh, 66 books written over a period of history covering thousands of years of history uh, with dozens of different authors. And all of them writing together at different points in, in human beings' history seem to weave together one big overarching story. And we need to see that to understand today's message, but also to get a better understanding of what the Bible is. So the Bible story is generally this. Chapter 1, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing except God, and He made everything. Chapter 2 of, the God, of God's story is the fall. Um, the problem with people is that we are people with a problem. Uh, creation was cursed. Uh, humanity was cursed. And, uh, and actually the devil himself was cursed. God said, you can eat of anything in the garden or you can do anything you like, but don't do this one thing. And so the devil came along and said to uh, the first human beings, I, you know, you can do that thing and tempted Adam and Eve as you know the story. But, uh, it was, and as a result, we, we broke relationship with God, went our own way, and God cursed um, the world that we live in. We, we talk about it being a fallen planet, us being a fallen people. But I wanted to read this because um, we'll come back to it later. In Genesis 3 verse 14, God curses the serpent. So right at the very beginning of the Bible, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And then remember this phrase, on your belly you should go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That phrase will appear another point today. So the fall took place. Chapter three was redemption. Um, God chose one family from all the families on the earth and said, through this family, I'm going to redeem all the families of the earth. 
Uh, and the supreme act of redemption was when God sent his son uh, and Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. We looked at God the suffering servant a couple of weeks ago and redemption occurred. And then finally, the final chapter, which is, is yet to fully take place, is the chapter of restoration, when God renews all things. And that's what we're looking at today. Uh, we are here in the story, if you like, um, in between the act of God redeeming through Christ and the time at which God is going to restore all things at the end. And today we're looking at this, restoration. So that kind of puts you in the frame a bit of, of where we are in history. Uh, and we're going to be looking at it through this, the God who renews creation and the God who renews society. And as I mentioned, we're talking about uh, heaven. And uh, I, if I'm honest, if I'm allowed to be honest, um, I struggle to believe in heaven sometimes um, because it's not something that I have too many frames of references for. Um, I, and if I'm honest, I don't give it as much thought as I ought to. And I, don't, I know I'm not alone in this because I've spoken to some of you and uh, some of my non-Christian friends, they'll mock the idea of heaven. It just it sounds like the kind of thing someone would invent uh, to escape something that was difficult. Um, but I think often the reason that I struggle to believe in heaven and that we struggle to believe in heaven is because of distorted views of what the Bible actually says about heaven. And so today I'm wanting to to hopefully correct some of those distorted views. But some of the images that come to my mind when we talk about heaven is, uh, is this, kind of clouds and stairways and chubby babies with wings and clouds playing harps. And In fact, I was playing squash with someone this week and he was mocking the idea of heaven. Even this week, it seems all my stories are about squash playing. Um, but he, he was just saying, oh, you know, St. Peter at the pearly gates, all of that. You believe that, don't you? I'm like, yeah, sure, if that's what you want. Okay, fine. And uh, that doesn't help us. Um, and actually that kind of image, I can more relate to this kind of baby. When you think about heaven, you think, yeah, I understand how you're, if you're feeling, if that's what heaven's going to be like. Um, and as Christians, I've noticed that we can often be just as devastated by death and the idea of death as everyone else. We, we talk about people losing their battle with a disease of some kind, about death winning. Uh, we talk about people passing away when they die, all of which are, are, are quite non-Christian ideas. Uh, and it was really brought home to me several years ago when a good friend of ours, same age as Amy and I, um, had a near-death encounter with cancer and for the better part of a year, year and a half, just came very close to losing her life. Uh, and she had a, a young son and happily married and almost died. And, we, and at the time, it really sh sent shockwaves through our friendship group. And we began to realize that as Christians, we don't think about heaven. Uh, and we'd not, we're not okay with death. That's okay. But we're not, we're, we don't believe too strongly that there's a better place beyond it. Uh, John Eldridge, an author, sums it up well. He says this, Nearly every Christian I've spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. Uh, we've settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever. That's it. That's the good news. And then we sigh and feel guilty that we're not more spiritual. I don't know if any of you can relate to that, thinking, really, church every day, forever and ever, singing? That's supposed to be eternal bliss? When an English vicar was asked by a colleague what he expected after death, he replied, well, if it comes to that, I suppose I shall enter into eternal bliss but I really wish you wouldn't bring up such depressing subjects. <laughs> and it's a, problem, it's a problem also because there's not many good theology books about death. So, so Louis Burkov, 
um, wrote a famous systematic theology that's been widely used in churches, and it's, it has over 900 pages in it. 38 of those pages are devoted to creation, 40 pages to baptism and communion, two pages to hell, and one to the eternal state. That's it, one page. You wonder why we're all at sea sometimes. Consequently, what we do is we make heaven in our image. We imagine a place filled with chocolate and a never-ending golf course in the sky, and we think, oh, I wonder why that doesn't feel more believable and why we find it hard to get excited about that. So what we're doing today is looking at Isaiah chapter 65, where Isaiah paints a picture, of a biblical picture, of where everything's going and how we can see in that that God is the God who renews all things. So we're going to basically read, read it together from verse 17, um, chunk, kind of, lump it into these two categories of uh, God renews creation and God renews society, and then we'll end with uh, worshipping and, and celebrating that together. So here we go. This is what he says in chapter 17. For behold, behold is this great Bible word. It's like, look, check it out. Don't miss this. This is what he's saying. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And that should immediately, immediately get us thinking about what we just said about the very beginning of the story. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah is using that same language to say it's the same story, it's the same God, it's the same idea. The God who's destroyed death, who brings peace, who vindicates, who's compassionate, who's world-shaping, universe-making, who's the cleansing God. It's that God. We're in his story and he's creating a new heavens and a new earth. Now, already we can see that the eternal state, heaven, is not some kind of floaty, spiritual, pagan existence. The renewed creation is, 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 is earthy. New heavens and a new earth. It's ta- tangible. It's touchable. It's tastable. The renewed creation is going to be better. God's making things again. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So he's saying it'll be like this one physical, but it'll be different. It'll be the same, but it'll be different. We won't have waited in line all night, all, all millennia, for a slightly better, improved version of the one we just had, like Apple do with their phones. Wait in line all night, we'll give you the same thing, but really just with a new package. It's not that. The former things won't come to mind. Now, currently, our world is dimmed and diminishing under the, the curse of sin, the infection of sin. But the new one will look so different that you won't look at it and say, that's the same. It'll be made of the same stuff, perhaps. It'll be physical, but it'll be different. Rather like a butterfly is so different from the cocoon, the, the, the caterpillar, the, from butterfly is so different from the, the caterpillar. You know, one looks at a butterfly and goes, oh, caterpillar. You look at a butterfly and go, huh. And now if I study a butterfly close enough, I could see the same components of a caterpillar. It's the same, but it's very different. And what that means is that just as uh, if we use the image of, of uh, the caterpillar and the cocoon, uh, the caterpillar uh, works its life eating, and uh, you know we've read the stories to our kids about the very hungry caterpillar, works all its life to get fat and full, and then forms this cocoon, and then out pops this beautiful butterfly. And what that means, if we're using that image, think about the new creation, is that what we do in this life isn't meaningless, isn't wasted. God's not going to suddenly go, ah, you kind of had all that pointless existence, now for the better one. It means that what we're doing now in renewing the earth, in bringing the kingdom of God, in working jobs, in raising children, in loving our husbands and wives, all of that stuff, God's going to use that to bring out of it the new creation. 
which is good news. God isn't just going to screw everything up and throw it in the bin and say, right, now on to Mac 2. He's going to take the components, the kingdom of God, the stuff that he's doing now, and bring that with him. Let's read on. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. If you're anything like me, I read that and go, huh? Uh, it's Bible language, my brain switches off, find it hard to stay with it. But if you've been tracking the, the book of Isaiah and seeing how he uses the theme of city, you'll notice that when he talks about Jerusalem here, again, he's not talking about the physical place of Jerusalem that we seems to kind of be on the news every day. He's not talking about that place. Instead, throughout Isaiah, what's happened is that um, he's used these two cities, the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem. And they've come to represent two, two ideas, the city of God and the city of men. The city of men was a place of weeping and mourning and sadness and distress. It's gray, it's bleak. The city of God, there's plenty of wine and feasting and celebration. And Jerusalem then has come to be this, throughout Isaiah, has come to represent, it's been, become this metaphor for, for God's city, the place that God rules and dwells, the thing that God organizes. Jerusalem then is a metaphor not for a city, but for the whole creation. The new creation, God's saying, is, is this Jerusalem, this place inhabited and organized by God of celebration and feasting. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping, and the cry of distress. That's a good phrase. Tells us a lot about the new creation. In our lives and on the TV, deaths and, death and funerals seem to occupy most things. And it's never far from our minds. If we're not experiencing suffering or if we're not experiencing grief, we know someone who is. And we know that our turn is coming. Life is saturated with it. But in the new creation, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping, the cry of, of distress. That cry of distress, the commentators say, is like the, kind of the crying out in pain and agony at something awful. What he's saying is the new creation will feature as part of it the end of agony, which is good news. You know, we, we have friends, all of us do, or maybe it's, it's us ourselves who are in constant daily pain, crying out in agony. And he's saying the new creation, there'll be none of that. God renews creation. He goes on to say this, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now this is, this is quite a confusing verse for a lot of people. They go, I thought we were talking about heaven and here he's talking about death. I don't understand how these two fit together. And, and so what we have to do is go, well, does, is, is Isaiah saying here that people are going to die? Well, given that just a couple of verses before he said there'll be rejoicing forever or the verse before he said there'll be no more weeping, no more distress, it sounds like that he's not saying that people are going to die because they're going to rejoice forever. There's not going to be any more sadness. And, and actually, we looked in, in chapter 25 uh, about how God promises to destroy death. So he's not saying people are going to die in the new creation. But what he is doing is he's using aspects of the creation that we know to create impressions of what is to come. So two common tragedies, uh, infant death and uh, 
elderly death, people dying, robbed of fulfillment. For us, it might be people dying of cancer or people um, dying too young, we say, before their time, saying we can picture that kind of heartache and that pain. And Isaiah is saying now, if it were possible for that, if it were possible for a young, a young infant to die, you can relate to the pain of, uh, of losing an infant. If it would be possible for that, well, a youth to die would be 100 years old. Be so different from what we know now. And if it were possible for, for someone to escape the judgment, if you like, and for sin to be in the new creation, if it were possible, he's saying, because of course it's not, but if it were possible, even a hundred years wouldn't be enough. They'd still, justice would still be done. Justice would still get caught up with them. We'd no longer say a hundred years, that was a good innings, wasn't it? No, we wouldn't say that. A hundred years, that's just a, a young life. It's a tragedy. That's what he's saying. The renewed creation then, Heaven, however we want to think about, think about it, will be a, a solid place, a full and complete place. It will be a place without agony, without heartache, a place of joy, a place of celebration. And what we begin to see then is that the new creation, the renewed creation, is going to be more like a celebration of family and friends with feasting than it is going to be like a church service. Now, I think some of our church services are very fun, they're very exciting, very upbeat, some some fun stuff happens, but heaven is, not, heaven is going to be much better than this, than the best church environment you've ever been in. That's good news. That's the new creation that God's going to renew. So he renews creation, and then the second half of the chapter we'll read together. Isaiah begins to describe the renewed society. And with the new creation, he said, well, it's the same, but it's different. It's the same stuff, but it's very different. The new society says it's different. But it's the same kind of idea. You'll see what I mean. The question often that people will ask is, well, what will people do? How will we live in the new creation? And this is what he says. Let's carry on reading together. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall enjoy the work of their hands. He's describing an image of peace and of fulfillment, of satisfaction. Andrew mentioned a few weeks ago that vineyards take a long time from planting them to producing wine from them. He's saying there's going to be peace for so long that you'll be able to plant a vineyard and enjoy the fruit of its, fruit of its grapes. You'll be able to, it's going to be that length of time. There's going to be peace and contentment, harmony. The Bible word for this is shalom encapsulates all of that. It's not just an inner peace, it's a peace with the world around us, it's a achieving contentment and satisfaction with everything that we do. Which again, right, to the people that Isaiah is talking to, people living in Israel, now Israel as a country has been, more in, has been invaded more often than not, more, invaded more times than any other country or strip of land on the face of the earth. He's talking to them and saying, there's going to be such a long time of peace that you're going to build houses and live in them. You're not going to have to build work for something that someone else is going to enjoy. That you're going to be robbed of it and have it taken from you. He's creating this beautiful image in their mind and, and uses this idea of a tree. Because trees, again, conjure in our minds this solid longevity, durability. So here's some of the oldest trees in the world. On the left there, old Jiko, uh, a tree in Sweden. It's 9,500 years old, they reckon. And on the right, 
Methuselah, which is a tree in California, although that's not the actual tree. No one knows which the actual tree is for security reasons. They won't tell us. But it's a tree that lives, has been living for 5,000 years. Trees kind of, I don't know, this image of just durability, sustainability, lasting throughout the seasons and civilizations that come and go around them. And that's what he's saying. My people are going to be this long-standing, enduring, contented, peaceful people. Like the elves in Lord of the Rings. They're going to be able to produce some magnificent societies because they live forever. Death isn't a part of it. Let's carry on reading. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And here's that phrase again. Dust shall be the serpent's food. It's the same story. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. These are famous words and famous images that no doubt you'll have seen on postcards and things like that. But the theme that's being communicated here about the society of the, of the renewed creation, the renewed society, the theme that's being created here is the idea of oneness and wholeness. We're going to be one with the Lord. There's going to be such intimacy with God that before we've even asked for something, he'll have done it. You might say, what's the point in asking? But that's not the point of the, the metaphor. The image is to conjure up in our minds this complete getting of one another between us and God. No rebellion or anger at God or confusion with God or disappointment with God. There's going to be just a complete understanding and oneness with God. And in creation as well, there's again, there's a oneness. A oneness with God and a oneness in creation. Lions and lambs and wolves conjures up for us this image of fears being removed, enemies being subdued, and natures being changed. Lions eating straw. Now, I don't know if this is what it's actually going to be like. Uh, it sounds like Isaiah's talking in metaphorical terms, but if he is talking in metaphorical terms, then we can be sure that the, the reality that the metaphor points to is going to be far more significant. Just in the same sense that, that this ring is a metaphor for my marriage, but our marriage is of much more substance than a, a wedding ring. So it is that this is a, a metaphor for oneness and peace and changed natures and renewed earth. But the reality is going to be far more significant, far more impressive. And I mentioned there was that, that reference to what we read in, in Genesis 3 about dust being the serpent's food. I find that incredibly exciting when I spotted that this week, um, that God's curse to the devil is still going to stand in the new creation, that evil is still going to be subdued, still going to be cursed, that the enemy is going to have no place there. And also in him referencing that image in Genesis 3, he is, again, wanting to tell us it's the same God, it's the same story. You're not off course. You haven't kind of come off the tracks and God's, everything's out of control. God is orchestrating everything. God is planning things, does hold things together. So the society we see, renewed by God, will be a place of satisfaction, a place of activity, of creativity, place of fruitfulness, a place of peace. And actually, early Christians used to talk a lot about the hope that they've been called to, uh, to be with God, the, the creation to come, the last days, if you like. 
they talked about it a lot because life required it of them. They, were, they lived in fear of their lives, constantly on the run, never sure when they were going to be arrested and at times thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. And so for the early Christians, uh, well, well, Paul writes actually, in the book of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament, he says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just, in fact you, just as in fact you are doing. In the early church, they were often telling one another, encourage one another with what God's taken hold of us for. This new creation is real. It's coming. It's been secured for us by the Messiah. And now we can encourage one another. This is what we've been called to. Now, the, the trouble for a lot of us, and a lot of the reason why we find new creation language in heaven such a hard thing to think about and get our heads around is partly because we don't think about it very much, and secondly, because we don't have reason to think about it too much. Um, particularly a lot of us, life is very well provided for. We're living in peace. We know what it is to plant a vineyard just by Alfriston and to, in time, watch the, the grapes produce the wine and drink it. We know that. We kind of live with that expectation. So it can be hard for us to to understand the significance of what Isaiah is writing. But if we get ourselves into their minds, if we understand how the, the early Christians would have understood these kind of chapters or what it meant to the people at the time, we begin to realize God is writing a story. God is going to renew all things. So we have the renewed creation. And we have the renewed society. And a question that come, might come to your mind, comes to my mind as I look at all this is, yeah, that's good, but how can we have all of this confidence? Is it just some pie-in-the-sky idea? Uh, the Muslims have their 72 virgins and palaces that, you know, the, the faithful adherents to Islam are going to get. They're going to get that, and, and Mormons are going to get something else, and our oh, Christians think that this is what's going to happen. Is, how, do I, how do I know that this is something that's grounded in reality? It's not just pie-in-the-sky, but it's steak on the plate while you wait. Um, well, interestingly... I'm glad you asked. In those uh, last few verses where it says um, about the, the lamb grazing and the lion eating straw and all of that, well, those verses are, are direct quotations from what we read right at the very beginning of our teaching series in Isaiah chapter 11. He references those same words, those same ideas, except there he introduces a clue to how it's all going to happen. The chap- verse 1 of chapter 11 in the verses preceding these images, he says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Well, he's saying that a shoot shall come forth from the root of Jesse. So Jesse... the key change. Uh, a shoot is going to come forth from the root. Jesse uh, was, was David's father. David is a famous king in the Old Testament. And what he's saying that David the king was a shoot that came out of, of Jesse. But what I, when Isaiah is writing, he's writing hundreds of years after David. So what he, what's he saying? What he's saying is one from the line of King David, in King David's family tree, one person is going to come And the arrival of that one person is going to be the security or the securing of this promise that he's making. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, 
one of the phrases that he, or the titles that he gave himself was the son of David. And in Matthew's genealogy of David, you see that he was in fact descended from the line of David. Jesus is the one that Isaiah promises is going to come and is going to mean that this hope of a renewed creation, a renewed society is not just a nice idea. It's because of this Messiah and his work. And because Jesus died on the cross and on Easter Sunday rose to new life, that new creation has broken out. The New Testament writers understood this, that Easter Sunday was significant, not just because a man came back from the dead, but because on Easter Sunday, God began his restoration project. And he's beginning his restoration project, not with trees and animals, but with people, with human lives. God takes hold of a life, transforms it, and 2 Corinthians 5 says, Behold, new creation, same idea. Here it is. When you become a follower of Jesus, the Bible calls it being born again. What's being born again or being renewed is the new creation. The new heavens and the new earth are coming in individual lives, people like you and me. And starting next week and over the summer, we're going to be looking at uh, what it means to be a Christian. Uh, the Bible uses the term in Christ. So we're going to look at what it is to be in Christ. Now that we are part of this renewed creation, what does it look like and, and how does it affect our lives? We're going to be looking at that. Uh, and last week, I was, uh, well, last Sunday in Eastbourne, they had some, some baptism test, baptisms and some people gave testimony of what God's done in their life before they got baptized. And I just thought they were so powerful. And such a clear example of what it looks like when the new creation breaks in that we're going to watch some of them together as well. And so this is the hope that we have. This is heaven, that God is restoring all things. He's not ignored us or just left things to run its course until the earth dissolves and, I don't know, destroys the earth. Now God is in control and God promises to renew creation and renew society. And we can be confident of that because God is the God who renews all things, starting with you, starting with me, which is amazing. And it means that we get to worship him and enjoy celebrating that together. So what we're going to do now is, is end by worshiping God some more, singing celebration again of God and what he's achieved in Jesus on the cross guaranteeing for us the new creation, the new creation power at work in our lives. So when we stand together, I'll pray for us and then John and the band will lead us. Thank you, Father, for this image of a renewed earth and a renewed society. Thank you, Father, that you are at work in the world, transforming people, changing people, bringing the power of the age to come to bear on our lives. I pray, God, that you would help each of us to, to know that power afresh in our lives today. God, for those of us who are feeling hopeless or struggling with hope, those of us who are feeling pretty beat up by grief. God, I pray that the encouragement that 
the new creation is going to feature the end of agony, would, would warm our hearts, God, that we would remind ourselves again what you've called us for and who you've called us to and who we are now that we're loved and chosen by you. Amen.